It's episode 77 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. Today on the program is good friend Erica Hall. She's the principal of Mule Design in San Francisco and author of a new edition of Just Enough Research. We're going to talk about the methods that so many people get wrong. Erica, thanks so much for being back on the show. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. It's always a, a delight to talk to you now that you are, are no longer in the Bay Area. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. And uh, in fact, you were you were my prototype uh, episode. You were episode zero of Presentable. I I asked you if you would <laughs> humor me uh, and like let me try this out once before I I get going. And then we posted it anyway. So oh, that's right. The first pancake. Yeah. Is that or- I, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I, I really appreciate. It. But th- and then you came back on like a year afterwards and scolded me about venture capital. And so <laughs> oh yes. I thought that was great. I was I was chatting last night over dinner with the kids, and they wanted to know who was going to be on the podcast. They always seem really interested in that. Briefly, wow. Um, and so, yeah, I know. And so I said, "Oh, it's my friend Erica." Uh, and my daughter said, "What she look like?" And so I I, I Google uh, did a Google image search, and I'm like, "She looks like this." And she was like, oh, "You're going to have a princess on your show?" <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So um, if, if people are searching Erica Hulk in Google Image Search right now, there's there's a picture of you giving a presentation, and it's in Europe somewhere, right? And you are you are dressed as literally a Disney princess. Oh, it's not in Europe. It's at Disney oh. World. Oh, you are at Disney World. Oh, I thought for some reason I thought you were in Hungary or something like that. I, but, I mean, um, totally no. possible, but no, it's because I was at an event apart. And it was the special edition at Disney World, uh, which was a three-day extravaganza. And I was speaking on the third day, and I was giving a talk I'd given many times before. And I was like, oh, how do I make this talk interesting for myself? And I said, oh, you know what? I'm going to Amazon Prime a princess dress because they don't sell them at the park for in adult sizes because they don't want what they call cast confusion. They don't want adults dressing up and children thinking like, oh, that's an official Disney representative when they're not. And so I ordered one on Amazon for $99 and overnighted it. And hmm. all I told Jeffrey Zeldman was, I'll be coming, I'll be changing into my speaking clothes and coming out from behind the stage. So just introduce me. And other people at the conference were in on it. That video of that talk is the event apart uh, official video of Just Enough Research, the talk. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right, I'll put, a, I'll put a link to the show notes to that. Yeah. Uh, so everybody can see you as a fabulous princess. Yes. So, and sometimes I, for, I forget because that was that was like four years ago now. And I also have an oil painting of that photo. Yeah, and it's just sort of a normal, like I just gave that talk. Did you uh, commission one of those like Chinese oil painting services where you send a JPEG and they give you back an actual painting? Yeah, Mike got that for me that year as my surprise Christmas gift. That was probably a big surprise. Yes. And uh, when we first moved into our current space, it was actually hanging in a big gold frame in the room we were running workshops in. And, you know, when things are around in your day-to-day life, you you stop seeing them the way that other people <laughs> see them when they first walk in. And so I would give all-day research workshops and then at the end ask, oh, does anybody have any last questions? And hands would go up and, and invariably the question would be, is that you in that oil <laughs> painting behind you? 
<laughs> and then I realized that it it made it, you know, a little bit like a, a totalitarian re-education room at that point. Like I was giving this workshop in front of a gold-framed oil painting of myself. Yeah, you and Chairman Mao, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah. And then there's then there's the story. Uh so uh, it's I, I forget. I forget that that's not a normal thing that everyone has in their office is an oil painting of themselves. As, oh, that's fantastic. That's great. It's a great painting. I, I totally I totally recommend the service. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, maybe get that done. What a surprise that might be. Um, uh, so how are things in San Francisco? Uh, it's been a few months since I've been back there. Yeah. Gosh, how how are they? Uh, I, I, yeah, it's, it, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer because I feel that there are several competing San Francisco's right now. Mm, that's a good point. Interesting. We are in what feels kind of like a, a, a struggle for the, for the future. My part of San Francisco is North Beach, uh, you know, the old historically Italian part of the city, which is quite charming and has many local businesses and, People who've been here for quite a long time. It's where beat poetry started. Uh, and we have City Lights Bookstore and Cafe Trieste, the the first place on the West Coast that ever served espresso. And so we have quite a little San Francisco here. And then, you know, in, in other places, it's uh, other other sorts of things. But I, I still like it here. Well, that's good. Uh, that's good. It sounds a little bit like, you know, Disney World, the way you're describing it. <laughs> go from fantasy land to, to to beat poetry land or something like that. Uh, it, it it really is. Or like a, a movie studio backlot, because, of course, you know, if I walk out the door of our studio, I'm I'm in North Beach and I can see down Grant Street into Chinatown. And uh, and it's a quite sudden shift from, you know, Italian cultural things and, and foods and people to like the, the Chinese area, which is a, a big tourist attraction. So it, it does, um, it is kind of like that, but you know, you're, you're from California. So, you know, this, that sensibility is very, you know, a lot of cultures coming together, a lot of tourist attractions. It's, it's just so normal to me. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I get a fair amount of that, frankly, here in London. You know, I go to the pharmacy and look up and go like, oh, yeah, Big Ben. That's pretty cool. You know, that kind of. Oh, yeah, right. right. Um, yeah. So uh, I think that's some of the benefits in, in living in kind of the, the iconic cities in the world. Um, but uh, yeah, good. Well, you know, I worry a little bit about San Francisco. I can't tell. And then it's been now, oh, my God, almost four, four and a half years since I've lived there. And um, when I go back, I, I wonder, is it, is, is it me that's changed or it's the city? And it, obviously, it's probably both. But um doesn't uh it feels like it's getting really stuck in this weird adolescence and uh, it just doesn't i don't know doesn't feel very good right now yeah it's not it's not in a sustainable place and i think that there's not like we we were just uh there's some colleagues in from out of town we're having this exact conversation which is the conversation people have in san francisco which is wow this doesn't feel sustainable but there isn't really like civic leadership and mm. so there's just a, a question of you know so many of the issues that san francisco has are structural issues right so many things that uh people blame tech companies for actually go back to tax policy in the state yeah. and uh so it would be good to have more city leadership it would be good to to deal with some of these structural issues but there are limits to what various people can do you know scott 
Scott Wieners in the state house trying to uh, deal with some of the housing issues that are really plaguing all of California. A lot of the pressures on San Francisco have to do with things that are happening down in the Silicon Valley where people aren't building density. And so that puts pressure here. And then the state occasionally catches on fire, but not as badly this year as last year. So, yeah. Yeah. And it, and it has it definitely has changed uh, culturally because in large part due to these economic pressures, which don't all have to do with things happening in the city of San Francisco. So it's complicated, but it's it's some of the same things that are happening to cities all over. You know, London is pro- is experiencing a lot of the same pressures like any of these great world cities uh, because it it has to do with the movement of capital across borders mm-hmm. Uh, that's much easier than uh, it used to be, you know, read your pickety. And uh, yeah, so so people get really caught up in what's going on locally. And we we do have some distinct local issues, but a, a lot of it is, you know, the same things are going on all over the world right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Um, it is, I do, th- I do feel a little bit of the pressure easing off of San Francisco or, or Silicon Valley being the absolute like mandatory location for all technology to be created. Um, I know even uh, almost sort of anecdotally uh, for the work that I do uh, with the firm that I'm at, uh, our investing has been uh, in the last fund that we did 50% outside the Bay area for the first time. Right. It it was usually very, very skewed Bay area. Wow. But yeah, I would. um, And um, uh, we've done a fair amount of investing here in, uh, the UK and, and Europe, but also New York and even places like Ann Arbor, Michigan and Missoula, Montana and stuff like that, where there's, oh. you know. Thank you for that. As somebody who enjoys living in San Francisco, I appreciate that. Talent is not, uh, uh, opportunity is not equally distributed, but talent kind of is, you know, like there's talented people all over the place. So, uh, trying yeah. to bring that opportunity to, to them as, a, as, and, and, you know, frankly, much, much cheaper way than, uh, trying to hire people in the Bay Area and pay them to live there. It's hard. Yeah, I can't imagine starting a company in San, San Francisco now on purpose. You know, we started Mule about the same time that you started Adaptive Path in a, a downturn in the area, which was the best time to start mm. a company. Yep, yep. Uh, literally in 2001. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So starting a new company now here in the Bay Area on purpose seems like the worst idea because absolutely everything and especially especially salaries would be the highest you'd pay anywhere because you have to cover their cost of living. Yep. Yeah. It is. It is. It's challenging. Um but all right. Well thanks for the update on San Francisco. It's always good to check in with my my old city. Um but I wanna I want to hear about uh the work you've done on uh reworking your book. Um, First of all, let me say that Just Enough Research is probably the book I have purchased the most uh, as gifts to other people that desperately need it. So thank you for that. Um, Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what you had on your mind when you decided to do a second edition. I love writing books was not necessarily the the thing I was thinking about. What I was thinking was I've heard from uh, a similar thing from a lot of people that the book uh, was has been useful. It uh, has performed the function I intended, which was really fantastic, which is to make uh, research and evidence-based decision-making seem accessible mm, to people yeah. who weren't necessarily comfortable with that. Uh, you know, because the, the whole reason I wrote it in the, the first place was I'd had so many conversations with clients about 
the necessity of doing research as the part of any design or problem solving project or, or exercise. And, you know, all of the books available were quite large and dense and written by yeah. researchers for researchers. Yeah. I'm like, okay, we need a thing you can hand to somebody. So then six years passed and the book is still, uh, people are still buying the book. And I thought, okay, well, it's a little harder to make the case that this book from 2013 now is still relevant, mm. even though when I went back and read it, I was like, oh, a lot of this stuff, because I wrote it not to be connected to anything, any particular trends that right. were going on, but to be general principles. And then the other thing, uh, in addition to just wanting to make sure that it was uh, current and still useful and relevant, was that I'd left out a topic in the first edition on purpose. I completely left out anything having to do with writing surveys <laughs> because I thought surveys are an advanced technique. People should not just, you know, I, I feel that people could pick up the book, sit down and have and start having really useful user interviews. They can start doing some great stakeholder research. They can start doing competitive analysis like right off the bat uh, and really learn things and, and really uh, do that in a responsible way. But I'm like, surveys are something that I really think you should have a master's degree before you write. Huh. But then six years later, what I found is that because of the wide availability of survey platforms, uh, that uh, whatever your expression of choice, the the horse has escaped the barn and people are just running surveys. And often this is the first type of research people do. And so I thought I would have to write a chapter describing the risks and giving some pointers for doing that sort of research responsibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, I have so many questions about surveys. I've been I've been through this very recently with my own work, and I want to ask them to you, but first we're going to take a little break. Uh, this episode of Presentable is brought to you by our friends at ExpressVPN. Uh, <clears throat> Erica, you probably use a VPN, I hope you do, uh, for your privacy and your security when you're like uh, sitting at Cafe Trieste having your uh, cappuccino uh, and surfing the web on their private or their public Wi-Fi. Yes, right? VPN. Oh yeah, yeah it's a course. you know it's a, there's those public Wi-Fi networks are not safe. No, at all. Of course, you never know. And I travel a lot too. It's not just at my corner. Right. I could be working from a, a cafe or a hotel room anywhere. Yep, very important. But did you know you can also uh, take your TV watching to the next level? You can unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. So uh, that means you can use ex uh, ExpressVPN to binge watch Doctor Who on the UK Netflix. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, but yeah. that's a problem I've had myself when traveling, when I watch, when I watch a show, and it turns out I'm in a country where I can't watch the show. It happens all the time to me because I want to watch the shows in the US and they're like, or even when I land on web pages, like, uh, especially after GDPR happened and uh, all of these American websites were like, oh, we can't. Uh, even deal with that at all. So we're just blocking the whole of Europe. And so I would have uh. to fire up ExpressVPN, change the location from uh, here in London to like New York, refresh the page, and it would work just fine because that's actually how the internet works. Uh, the internet doesn't really know about licensing and things like that. So um, 
ExpressVPN does a very good job of hiding your IP address so you can control where you want sites to think you're located and you can choose from over 100 different countries. And it's uh, think about all the different Netflix libraries you can go through in all 100 countries. It's amazing. Uh, if you love it, <laughs> if you love anime or uh, you can use it to access J- uh, Japanese Netflix, um, it works with Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, whatever you want. It's great. There are 100 of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. Uh, which is what you want when you're watching, when you're streaming video. Uh, no buffering, no lag. Uh, stream it in HD. Uh, it's compatible with all your devices. It works on media consoles and smart TVs and phones and iPads and everything. Watch whatever you want, whenever you do, uh, want to. Um, uh, if you go to, uh, expressvpn.com slash presentable, uh, and buy a one year package, they'll give you an extra three months for free. Uh, you'll support this show. Watch whatever you want. Protect yourself. Expressvpn.com slash presentable. Thanks to them for their support of Presentable and all Relay FM. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. So, okay. Um, let's talk about surveys. How likely are you to uh, recommend to a friend uh, this episode of Presentable? What do you think? Uh, boy. <laughs> where well, to start? Yeah, well, where, where to start with that? I know. How how many of those surveys do you see on a given day or a given week? No, I see them all the time. Uh, I went to, I don't even remember, some e-commerce website to buy a thing. And they sent me to like, they had some third-party shopping cart tr- transaction thing that was called something else. And, th- and that shopping cart said, how likely are you recommending this shopping, ex- this shopping checkout experience to your friends? I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. Uh, that's what I talk about with my friends yeah, all the time. Yeah. So, uh, one of the things you say in your book is that surveys feel great because they, they seem easy. Uh, and you were mentioning before the break the idea of all, or, or the reality of all of these uh, new web services like SurveyMonkey and, and whatnot that just make it, it is just incredibly easy and usable and delightful to create a survey. It's just so much fun. Uh, but uh, that there's a lot of danger in doing that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it feels, it not only feels easy, and because, you know, if you've, you know, read your Daniel Kahneman and you're, you're thinking fast and slow. Uh, you're familiar with the principle of cognitive ease, which is, you know, our brains are super lazy. And if something is easy to understand or deal with, we think it's more true. (laughs) And just because surveys are easy to put together and then the results are so easy to count, right? You can dump the results right in a spreadsheet. You can make little charts and graphs. Our brains are naturally predisposed to think that that sort of information is inherently uh, more reliable and less biased. And that creates a huge problem because just because somebody answered a question that you posed to them in a survey doesn't mean that that answer in any way reflects reality. And there's no feedback mechanism. There's nothing inherently in the survey that helps you gauge how reliable that answer is or how well written your question was. Unlike in a an interview with a live human, when you're sitting there talking to them, you can get a sense for did they understand the question? Are they making something up I want to hear? Are they confused by the question? There's that live feedback. And surveys have no feedback whatsoever to tell you whether or not it's a good survey. Mm. 
Yeah, that's true. Very few people, I think, that I have experienced when I'm talking about just user research or design research in general, uh, really grasp the notion that it is the full experience that you have of talking with somebody that leads to the the richness that that many insights are derived from. Right. And that's why it's called thick data, because it's thick with context. That's great. That's great. Um, and a survey kind of abandons all of that. You have no idea what people are thinking or, or often who's even taking it. Right. Or whether they understand the question, which is uh, or how they understand the question. And those are really those are really the parts that are, that are super important, because sometimes you can find things out uh, at least some you could have some sense of who's taking it, maybe because it, it came from a certain email address, a certain IP address in a certain region. But, yeah, you, you don't know with any certainty who exactly they are. So uh, we can get I, I want to get into a little bit of the detail around like how you might be able to conduct a survey and do it effectively. But before we do that, we, we really do need to talk about the net promoter score. I was kind of joking about that after <laughs> after our little break. Um, th- this idea of asking people uh, at the end of an experience that they have, if they can imagine a time in the future when they might say to somebody that they care about, you should do this same experience. Right, like that's the premise of the Net Promoter Score. Yeah. Uh, the reality is, then it, it gets concatenated into a single number that then seems to, for whatever reason, have become like this lingua franca of business now. Like, are yeah. we doing well? Yes. Out of eleven, we are at eight point five, and that's really high. Or I don't even remember what all the the numbers are, but um, or what the scale actually is. But it's something almost entirely arbitrary and. Uh, in- it just incredibly uh, popular, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was created. So the the guy who who created it it was a a guy named Fred Reichelt who was a consultant with Bain, you know, the management consulting company. Sure. And like back in the early two thousands, they were working with I think Enterprise Rental Car Company, and he was trying to help the managers there and uh, have something that they could manage around. And what they found was that asking people, uh, they, they worked on this for a couple of years to kind of invent this metric. And what they found is if somebody rented a car and, and you said at the end of renting a car, how likely are you to, to recommend? Then that was a, a good indicator of, of growth in the, in the company. And it, make, it made sense. Like many methodologies or techniques it made sense at a time in a context like yeah asking somebody after a car rental which was significant and renting a car is something that maybe people people who travel ask each other for recommendations all the time about travel related things because it's not something you do every day and and going with a you know your trip is can be good or bad depending on how something goes a hotel or a car so it made sense my understanding is that it was also that they would like capture the answer to the question literally as they're getting out of the car, right? And and that yeah. uh, and the big driver for creating that question was so that they could direct people to the appropriate outcome, right? Like if they were in the middle, they were sort of like you know in a eight out of ten, they'd be like, great. If they were a ten out of the ten, like wonderful. Do you mind if we get a quote from you for our marketing? And if they mm-hmm. were lower, they could send them to customer support and say like, oh, sorry, what? Let's figure out what happened and how we can make it right. So it was almost this like filtering agent that they used, right? 
Yeah, there are other interventions. And the score, I mean, the score is very strange because, you know, zero to six are detractors, seven or eight. They don't really count. They count those as passive. And the only people who are the scores that are good are only nines and tens. So it's weird that the lower six numbers all count the same and they all count as something bad. Uh, but And he came up with this math because usually when you analyze quantitative data, you have to know statistics. And he made this easy for managers who don't know statistics to deal with the number, too. So it was also created as a, a way to get around statistical analysis and to um, to help direct people to, to, you know, different paths based on their sentiment at that point. Right. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but then it blew up. It turned like he spun it off into its own thing, right? Yeah. And it's everywhere now. Like literally everywhere. Because when uh, when the folks at Bain invented NPS, there w- not absolutely every life function happened on the Internet. And now, you know, and, and you and so the idea that you'd have a significant interaction with a, a company as a customer and then you could say well would you with with their core business but now you know you pay your pg&e bill or you immediately land on a website to get some information i got an nps survey uh on an academic paper website yesterday immediately upon landing <laughs> on the site it was one of those like clearing houses for research journals and i was looking for a particular article and immediately They said, we want to give you this survey. And so it's being completely misused. Interesting. It's it's a little bit like direct mail, which was, you know, slightly annoying before the Internet uh, because uh, it was limited inherently because it cost money to do it. Uh, And then after the Internet, of course, the world of spam blossomed into what we have today. Uh, So so the, the idea of a survey used to be like you would have to call people or print something or, you know, there was effort involved. Now... You just like a little JavaScript include and you get it. Yeah. And it and it feels much faster and easier uh, than any other uh, form of information gathering you could do. And it is now possible to programmatically insert these things anywhere in, in somebody's online interaction w- with your business, your website, your app, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can we... Uh, for the topic of NPS, for for all of those sort of qualitative researchers that are out there, designers or whoever is in their job, where it is, it, it becomes the sort of religion of their company. Is there any sort of way they can push back? Like, uh, what what are the what are the talking points around that? It's yeah. This is a very what you're asking me is a very very popular question. Uh, so the the first thing to note is that because of human nature, you can't just argue somebody out of this. So do not try to just come straight at somebody and tell them that their belief in NPS or managing around NPS is bad or worthless. You will not make friends and you'll be shut down. Uh, Probably good advice for many areas, especially around the holidays with your family. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Dude, yes. Do do not. If somebody has a belief that you believe that is counterfactual, you have to understand that just, again, the way human brains work, and this is very frustrating for fact-based people, if you have a belief, you will hang on to that belief and facts don't change minds. Yeah. So 
what you have to do, and especially if uh, you want them, you're trying to prove that they were wrong and, and that'll make them feel bad. And so people will get very naturally defensive and I'll see it as an attack on their worth. And if somebody really believes in NPS for whatever reason, then you have to see it that you're calling their expertise and their judgment into question if you just tell them mm-hmm. NPS is stupid or bad. And so, and this can be very frustrating because it can be a very slow process. But what you have to do is start uh, from a place of agreement always. So start with what your goal is because the the problem uh, with uh, NPS and other numbers like that, the situation, the name for the situation is surrogation, which is that a manager uh, takes a number like a score or a grade, and uses that as a surrogate for a desired outcome and then starts managing towards the number. So the danger in this is what happens is companies manage to increase their NPS scores. And the idea is that by doing that, you'll make your business more successful, more profitable, better growth. But actually, if you just aim to improve the number, then you'll start doing things that undermine um, the actual business outcome that number is supposed to help you get to. The yeah. worst case of this, of course, was Wells Fargo, where they the score that they were trying to get uh, everybody to rally behind was the number of accounts opened. And so because of the intense pressure to uh, improve that right. score, the salespeople were fraudulently opening accounts. Yeah. And that's possibly the worst example of that sort of surrogation and what it can do to a business. Mm, it's all about incentives, isn't it? Yeah, and they're like increase. So if if what you're telling if what you're telling people in a business is our goal is to just increase the score, uh, it's really really easy to game the scores, right? And so what you have to do is start from okay, what's our goal? How do we know we've achieved that goal? And what do we need to know? And I, so I'd say what you do is you don't try to talk people out of MPS. Well. Except to the extent that you say giving people surveys is really ruining the user experience. If what we're trying to do is create a good user experience, that's terrible. If people are keen on it, I often ask them to just keep track of the number of surveys you're presented with and ask people to sort of project, well, how do you think people feel in general? You're not making your customers feel very good. But really what you need to do is set aside NPS and get people to appreciate Uh, qualitative data and get people to really understand what they're trying to learn, right? Because people want MPS because it's such a, it seems like such a clean, like, oh, it's a score. Everybody wants a score, but you have to, you don't, you have to move people away from thinking about a score to just thinking about learning and Mm. say, okay, in order to achieve some outcome, we need to know things about our customers. We need to know things about our business. We need to know things about the technology. How do we learn those things? And I think over time, you can just get people to understand the power of learning things and maybe decrease the relative enthusiasm for NPS. That is a slow process. Like there's no quick fix for this because there are so many organizations invested in selling you these surveys that the, that the marketing messaging around these sorts of scores and surveys are good and easy and you should do them. Right. 
It's like pharmaceutical advertising. It's like you can't give somebody a don't do drugs message on TV in a commercial when 10 other commercials are drugs are awesome. You'll be running through a field in sunshine if you take this pharmaceutical. I mean, this is a real American problem. In the same way, you have to understand that there's so much marketing around the concept of just running surveys and getting simple scores that that's what you're up against. Yeah, yeah, that's true. A lot of the the kind of survey industrial complex is is uh, promoting the outcomes of the survey as something that is going to improve your business, not just the the fact that you're you know trying to to learn and, and gather insights. That's uh, yeah, that can't be particularly can't be particularly uh, effective. Yeah. So any designer or researcher who feels like ah. Oh, why why do they believe this thing it's cuz the the marketing of the tools yeah yeah for completely inappropriate purposes is that's what you're up against so you have to not fight that you have to instead just talk about and advocate for in a positive way the benefits of getting more rich contextual information to fill in gaps in your understanding yeah. and just completely change the framing of the conversation that's yeah that's the way to do it is to change the framing let's step back and see what we can do. Um, all right, I want to talk about how we might uh, collect some of this rich uh, contextual data. Uh, but first, we're going to take one more break. Uh, we're going to talk about our very good friends at Pingdom who want to know how our holiday shopping is going. Are you done? Oh, I haven't even started. No. <laughs> I don't know. I'm busy. Uh, I have. I think I'm going to win. Absolutely win Christmas for many years to come uh, because we got the kids a puppy. So. Um, <gasps> Yeah. Oh my Aww. god. Uh if you if you use the Facebook, you can go see the puppy on the Facebook. But um Aww. yes, I know, I know. It's a big deal. Lots and lots of research, lots of planning and all that kind of stuff. And uh as you're aware, as a dog owner, uh a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of new gear, new stuff. In oh, our yes. life. oh my god. So much stuff. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome no. to accessorizing your dog. Yeah. Uh got my little clicker, got my treats, starting the training. It's the whole thing. It's really fun. But anyway, uh, where I'm going with this is that like when I'm doing all the shopping, the worst thing that can happen is shopping cart just fails uh, or the website is unavailable. Uh, this has actually happened to me last week. It was incredibly frustrating. Ugh. Yeah. Um, uh, so Pingdom, our friends at Pingdom will let you know the moment that your website goes down. If you're, do, if you're running an e-commerce website, if you're running any kind of website, uh, they will notify you the instant something goes wrong in whatever way is best for you. Uh, they use... You can use transaction monitoring to get alerted when a cart checkout or forms or login pages fail because they, uh, and, and you can do this before they affect your customers in your business. Uh, you can customize how you're alerted and who is alerted and depending on the severity of the outage, where the alert goes. It's really a pretty powerful system. So uh, you can get a 14-day free trial right now at pingdom.com slash RelayFM. Uh, you don't even need a uh, credit card. Uh, but if you do sign up, if you use the code presentable, you get 30% off first invoice, which is huge. Great savings. So uh, the code is presentable. The website is pingdom.com slash RelayFM. Thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and for their support of all of RelayFM. So there you go. Keep your mule design website uh, alive and kicking. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, because it's the worst when you're trying to buy something and the site won't take your money. No, no take my money, please. Yeah. 500 error, 404. Uh, all right. So uh, how, do, how, how do we even start? Uh, you have a whole section in the in the survey book about math, which is really good. And I'm going to skip it because it'll just hurt my yep. head right now. Uh, but, uh, That's sort of the point, too. Yeah. yeah but the, 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 the uh, summarizing all of that is basically 
make sure you know who you're talking to and and uh, how many of them there are and make sure that it it sort of all adds up to how confident you can be in your answer. So there's some yeah. very well-defined equations that help you do that kind of stuff and no need to reinvent any of that. But it's the it's the questions and what you get and how you get good answers. That's what I'm so curious about. Mm-hmm. So how do we do it? So the the thing I really want people to understand about uh, putting together a survey that you can really rely on is that it's actually more work in many cases than just sitting down and talking to people because you should think of designing an online survey like designing an application. Like that's literally what you're designing. You're creating an app and you're hoping that people interact with this app so that you can get reliable data out of it. And so it's not simple, even though the you know it's easy to put them together, the thought that goes into it should be on that level. And so if you're writing questions, you actually have to understand your audience and do user research in order to write survey questions, because mm. otherwise you won't know if the questions actually map to how people in the world you're trying to understand think about things. So, what, yeah, what a lot of people don't realize is that in order to, to really create a survey that will get you reliable information, you have to understand your audience and do research with them to make sure that the questions are, you know, eliciting the responses you're hoping to get because they actually reflect the mindset. If you don't know the vocabulary that's meaningful to people, if you don't understand, if you're giving somebody a multiple choice question, right. you have to give them a range of choices that reflect all possible answers that they might have. Right, right. Or the uh, the the uh, other at the end, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which tells you nothing. Yeah, just dump everything in the other. And, and, you know, that whether your question is open-ended or multiple choice or a scale, all of these are really important considerations. You can't just, you know, pick one because it sounds good. And there are some questions you just can't ask people in a survey. You can't ask somebody to project into the future. And that's another reason why NPS is kind of ridiculous because you can't ask somebody like, no one can reliably tell you on a scale of one to 10 how likely they are to do something in right. the future, like recommend something, buy something. That's just an, no one can predict their own behavior and report that prediction with any accuracy. So anytime you're asking somebody, how likely are you to do something? You're asking them to fabricate right. an answer. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. All right. Create some fantasy uh, world in the future. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nobody like everybody wants to think that they they're good predictors of their own behavior and nobody is. So it would actually be better to ask somebody like, have you in the last month recommended our product to somebody that you would get some data, some actual like reported data? You know, it, it would be a question of how much you could rely on that. But if if you can ask somebody about something in the not too distant past, at least you're like, well, they're probably not making that up. But if you're asking somebody like, how likely are you to like buy a car, go on vacation, you know, order this for lunch? 
you're just asking them to completely speculate and and make up a fantasy story for yeah, you. Yeah. How do you feel about the uh, about the questions that try to get at people's preferences? Like, I strongly approve. I approve. I'm undecided. I strongly disapprove. All of that kind of stuff. Well, so those are that. That's the the Likert survey stuff. You know, that was Rensis Likert's PhD thesis way back in the uh, like 20s or 30s. I should know that. Those questions can be fine, Mm -hmm. except you have to understand what you're asking for are attitudes. That type of survey question and scale was designed to understand the representation of uh, the distribution of attitudes within a population. But I think what a lot of uh, uh, designers and business people use those surveys for, again, is to understand behavior. Like they take a preference to be a direct uh, indicator of that behavior occurring. Mm. But people's stated preferences and people's behaviors are often divergent. And design and business succeeds based on how people behave, not what people's stated preferences or beliefs are. Like it doesn't matter what people believe, if they're not, you know, clicking the button on your website or downloading your app. Yeah, they're just not they're just not doing it. <laughs> yeah, so so the so my question to people designing those sorts of surveys is what are you hoping to get out of asking somebody, you know, do you strongly agree, do you strongly disagree? Cuz there's another question behind that which is what's the relationship of those stated beliefs to what you're actually trying to learn about. Oh, that's about. so good. That's so good. And that kind of might be the highest level uh, way of approaching a survey. It's just like for each question that we're writing down, what is the action we hope to take with the, with the outcome, with the answer to the question? Like what are we doing yeah. in our business, in our product, right, with our customers? What are we going to do with this? Uh, and that is, frankly, that's my whole process. When I sit down with somebody who's like, hey, could you have a look at a question, this, this survey we're going to send out? Like, I don't really even care about the questions. I mean, sometimes I do. They're so, they, they could be yeah. so terribly biased or, or just incorrectly worded. Mm-hmm. But I'm always like, for this first question, what do we do with the answer? Like, tell me about all the stuff that's going on in your business that's going to be affected by this answer. Right. And that's the conversation to, to really start with, I think. Yeah, that's that's fantastic because a, a lot of times no one just takes the time because everyone's rush, 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 and no one takes the time to really think at that level or have that conversation. And you know, probably in, in your, it it could be a really quick conversation. Like maybe it takes a while to get to the answer, but to just sit down, you could take fifteen minutes and say, "Okay, let's just tell me how you're going to use this information." And mm-hmm. have you ever been met with a stunned silence when you ask that question? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. For sure. Uh, One of my greatest moments earlier this year, you know, because I started incorporating the new material into the workshops I run. And I was doing I was working with this uh, this software company down in in Southern California. And one of the the person who brought me in said, well, we we run a lot of surveys. People are really that's what they do more than anything else. And I'm, I'm concerned that they're just getting a lot of garbage data. And so I had this fantastic exercise where after I'd gone through like forming questions and understanding what you need to know, I said, okay, get with your group and think of something that a question that you have that you really have to get an answer to in order to make a business decision. And I had them think about their goal and and think about their real world scenario. And then I said, okay, write me one survey question that will get you information that you can use. Mm -hmm. And gave them 15, 20 minutes to do that. 
And at the end of it, it was a big group, too. And like fully half of the tables, at least, were were completely unable to think of a survey question. And their response was, oh, we realized that there is literally no way to find out what we need to know to make this business decision by running a survey. There's no survey question that will help us. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And to me, that was I, I took such a victory lap on that. They were just like, oh, now we know. Now we understand that when we think about this even a little bit deeper than we have been, we realize that there is actually no way to get this critical information with a survey. And there are other ways to get it. But but there's this uh, strong bias against talking to people in a lot of organizations that comes from fear or uh just a feeling that it will take too much time, that it will be too subjective. And so they're like, oh, we'll just we'll just run a survey. But a survey isn't a substitute for the kind of research you really need to do. Right. Like you just do the research you need to do in a way that fits within your schedule and budget. I have uh, I have seen a survey in the past and 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 commented to the people that wanted to run it. I, I said, you know, this. I don't think this is going to work very well. So many of the questions are just loaded with your own kind of jargon, internal language yeah. that your customers are not going to understand. You really have to reword these in the language of your customers. And they asked me, well, how, how do we do that? And I'm like, well, you go talk to them. They're like, oh, well, how do we do that? <laughs> it's like, aha, here we go. We're not doing a survey anymore. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, there's a, uh, I think there's a, there's there's just a lot of work not being done that I think a, a survey can kind of uncover, right? Like, or, or or laying that in front of a team and saying, like, look, before we do this, we have a lot of work to do. So, um, uh, I think the I thought I think the chapter is really strong. I'm glad you added it to the book. It makes the book much better. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it, that's that's good to hear. Um, yeah, the math is mostly in there to to scare people, to really make them think. Because everybody thinks like, oh, because you can count it, it's quantitative data. And no, like nothing is quantitative data unless you have achieved statistical confidence. And even that's that's kind of dicey. So that's that's in there just to sort of terrify people and say, oh, maybe we shouldn't do a survey. If I don't understand the math, we shouldn't do a survey. And uh, yeah, so I'm glad. Uh, yeah, I was I was concerned and I did. I had to do a lot of you know, research myself to make sure that the things I were say I was saying in that chapter I could stand behind because again, yeah. it's an advanced technique that's been sold as a very, very easy thing to do. And I was just so worried that people are making really important business decisions that represent investments of potentially millions of dollars based on a survey that just is a lot of lies that they yeah. got back. You know, I also I have this belief that surveys are often the face-saving way out of an argument in a meeting. Yeah. Right? That, that At the end of the day, nobody wants to do the survey, but the, these two people can't agree. And so they're like, well, let's just ask people. And, um, and we almost never get back to the argument anyway. But uh, it's good stuff. All right. Well, um, uh, that's all the time we got. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show. The book is... Just enough research. It's from our friends at A Book Apart. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, uh, go out. Even if you bought the first one, you got to buy the second one now, too. you got to have the matching pair. Um, where can we find out more? You are Mule Girl on Twitter. 
Yes, I'm on I'm on Twitter uh too much, but I do I do have really good conversations with people there. So so I stick to it. Yeah. I, I write stuff on Medium pretty often. That's really where we've moved uh our studio blog for the most part. Okay. Um I will put a link to that as well. And people can always learn more about mule design and the work that you guys do at mulesdesign.com. That is correct. All right. Well, hey. Have a wonderful rest of your year and a happy holiday. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show. You too. Onward to 2020. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable. Presentable.